My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. This is not a podcast about how to make a million bucks, how to beat the stock market, or how to save money by switching cable providers. It's about how we think about and live with money as a society and as individuals. It's about the choices we make that lead us toward or away from happiness. Welcome to Crazy Money. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Crazy Money. Before we get started, please indulge me and listen to some places where I'll be telling jokes in public. On Wednesday, May 8th, I'll be at Westside Comedy Club on the 8 o'clock show. Friday, May 10th through Sunday, May 12th, I'll be performing in five different shows as part of the Laughing Skull Comedy Festival in Atlanta, Georgia. On Thursday, May 16th, I will be performing at the Comedy Palace in San Diego as part of the San Diego Comedy Festival. And if I'm real funny that night, maybe I'll make it to the semifinals on Saturday night at the Comedy Palace and the finals on Sunday. Stay tuned for that. Also, May 24th, I'll be in Asheville, North Carolina, headlining the Lazoom Comedy Night. Can't wait. Love Asheville. For more dates in June and beyond, go to paulollinger.com slash events. Okay. This week, we continue to discuss the concept of straddlers, that is, individuals who grew up working class but worked their way into the white-collar world. We're going to have two different interviews. Last week, I interviewed the author of a book called Limbo, Blue-Collar Roots, White-Collar Dreams, Alfred Lebrano from Philadelphia Inquirer. It's a really interesting interview. Go check it out if you want to. But this week, I wanted to talk to some real-life straddlers that I know. The second person we're going to talk to in the back half of the show is named Susan Nicholas, She is a parent of one of my son's friends, and she has a really interesting story. She came from a pretty broken home uh, with very unique family dynamics that she'll go into. She's got a handful of incredible medical degrees and an MBA as well. Huh, what the heck? And she's going to dive into why she studied so much, and she's got a really interesting story. The first interview is with my good buddy, Yancey Sproul. I met Yancey on my first day of business school in 1995. We were sweet mates in business school. After school, we lived together in New York City for three years as young, single, professional guys before we found our respective spouses and started families of our own. We no longer live together, by the way. But Yancey, who has always described himself as just a simple kid from Buffalo, he grew up in a rough neighborhood in West Buffalo, New York where food stamps and eviction were part of his reality. He got out of the neighborhood through going to college. He went to Georgia Tech. After working for a few years, he went and earned his MBA at Dartmouth. As mentioned, he left business school, worked on Wall Street for seven years. And since then, he, for the past 15 years or so, he's worked in the private sector as chief financial officer of small companies that have gotten pretty big. He took both of them public, and he's, he's had a really successful professional career. And his youth has been a really integral part of the way he approaches his work. Here's my conversation with straddler number one, Yancey Sproul. Yancey Sproul, welcome to Crazy Money. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this conversation. So Yancey, as you know, we're talking about the concept of straddlers as outlined in the book Limbo, Blue Collar Roots, White Collar Dreams. It was written by last week's guest, Alfred Lebrano of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And it's all about people who have achieved significant professional success after growing up in financially disadvantaged homes. So tell me about the home that you grew up in. Well, I grew up for most of my my time as a kid uh, before leaving for college uh, in Buffalo. Prior to that, I was born in Chicago. For the first 10 years, both my parents were together, married. 
I would say we were working for. Both of my parents, for the most part, had jobs. We'll get into that in a second. There was some isolated incidents where they didn't. You know, we were check to check. We grew up in a community that was either working poor or on you know welfare. And uh, so I grew up in a, in a world where people struggled economically, and that was just life. You know, I spent a lot of my time focusing on having fun and doing well in school so I can get out of that situation. But and we had some situations where, you know, father lost a job or whatever, where we were on welfare briefly, you know, had food stamps and can remember that vividly in my life. For the most part, uh, that was very narrow circumstance, but uh, for the most part, we were just kind of like a lot of people just trying to make ends meet and barely doing so. Did you pick up a lot of stress from your folks in that environment? Absolutely. I think it's interesting to have the perspective now how circumstances have changed for me, but I still have a lot of that stress. But there was clearly a lot of stress when growing up in Buffalo, having the heat cut off is not very interesting. And we had that uh, happen a few times in the fall, being evicted from an apartment because we probably lost a job. Uh, That's very stressful. So not being able to eat good food. There's clearly the lack of money and the lack of flexibility that provided us was the backdrop for my first 18 years, maybe a little bit longer, where it was just hard to to do everything on you know very limited income. Do you think that you absorbed that stress and does it still linger with you? Yeah, I, I always viewed us not having money. And in the first part of my growing up, it was just going to neighborhood schools. Eventually in Buffalo, when I started busing, I went to magnet schools and started being around people who actually had uh, a lot different uh, experience than I did living in houses and, you know, clearly going on vacations and having cars and all, all the things that, you know, are basic, but we didn't have them. And so that added a backdrop of context where that it didn't have to be that way in real life, not just what you see in the movies or or TV. For me, it added a level of aspiration, you know, and frustration that that we lived that way. And the reality is when you live in that sort of world and it's in a community where everybody's living the same way, it, you know, there's a certain comfort in it and you get used to it like everything in life. But having that context and being so close with people on a daily basis who were not in that, you know, gave me a lot of desire to keep working and uh, keep my nose clean, importantly, growing up where I did. So I didn't get any trouble that derailed me from, you know, ultimately getting a life where, you know, I wasn't worried about money. At least that was my goal. When I say aspiration, it was, I wanted to be successful. Uh, I wanted to be accomplished and I didn't want to worry about money. I thought that was attainable. I'm learning now 40, 50 years later, 40 years later, it's not necessarily attainable, but the different context, but I certainly was very driven, you know, by that. So a lot of people I know are were against busing back in the day. It was a lot of violence around it and part of the whole migration from the civil rights era. But it helped me add context in a way that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been as aspirational if I just stayed in my neighborhood school, being around the community. Because, you know, for so many people locked in those communities without that external context, you don't get aspiration because your reality is, is just so limited. And that actually broadened my horizons in a way, which I think was a real help and boost in me getting out into a much better situation over time. You said you wanted to avoid trouble for like the other kids in the neighborhood were getting into. What kind of trouble were they getting into? Crime, petty crime, big crimes. You know, it was interesting with me. I always did well in school. 
from right out of the bat, I always was very interested in reading and math and all that sort of stuff. And I always got very good grades and I worked at it, which, you know, when you grow up in a world where a lot of people don't see that as a path to meaning anything, because frankly, in the late 60s, 70s, your black didn't really matter if you had good grades or whatever. The world was still relatively difficult. And uh, I always had a faith, you know, people in my family always encouraged me to do it. And I just had faith that that, that would work. But it was hard growing up in an environment where a lot of people were making easy money illegally or certainly not uh, in the in the way that uh, sustainable. But in that environment, that's respected. You know, it's flaunted. And for people that are struggling, it's very tempting to just take the easy way out. It's what you know. It's uh, it's all around you. And in an ironic sense, I mean, I was certainly, you know, my mom certainly was on me to you know be good. But I had a lot of friends who were into bad stuff who actually didn't want me to be involved. I think they saw something in me that uh, said, Yancey, don't mess with this. I would credit these are people that by conventional society would not be people be terrified of them. But um, those are the types of folks I grew up with. And they, in an odd way, were mentors to me to you know, keep working hard at, uh, at school. And you know, I had a path out that they didn't have and they regretted a lot with that they were living. And that had a huge impact on me because it was hard when you're in an environment where it seems like the only way to make money is to do it illegally. That um, when you're sort of on the long game of, you know, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to do all these things. and I'm going to go out into this world that doesn't look like it's open to us and people are looking at you a little funny. That helped me persist, I think, on that path. Did you fit in in the neighborhood or were you seen as a bit of an oddball? Yeah, I would say both. I wouldn't say an oddball. Certainly, you know, when you study and you read and you work hard in school and, you know, you have this thing where other people look at you as, quote unquote, acting white, talking white. Uh, What are you doing that for? Why don't you hang out kind of stuff? So I wouldn't say oddball. I would say nobody else did it or there's 50 people, maybe four or five people did it at our age. Mm -hmm. It was that context. I wasn't for the easy money. And, you know, when I was in my early teens, mid-teens, I think that was a big deal. It was interesting as I started getting scholarships and actually left Buffalo, but really flipped where people saw that you could get out. And I think, you know, every time I go back and I see people who, you know, weren't so kind in some ways 40 years ago, I think uh, they look at me now and I'm like, wow, that actually did work. So, um, <laughs> but it was tough. I mean, it's, you know, they call it peer pressure. They don't call it that in a neighborhood. You know, the reality is everybody's got to go through that. I certainly had to go through it. I was on the outside looking in. I wasn't tough. I didn't play that game. I just didn't see that as as the path for me. And thank God I, I didn't because, you know, the outcomes for people doing those things in the short term are really short term. And I think a lot of people don't have that perspective. But sitting here so many years later and whenever I go back, it's, I mean, it's sad in some ways, and I'm gratified in others that you know I am where I am. But it was not easy taking a path that a majority of Americans, <laughs> or a huge chunk of Americans, just say, "Oh yeah, that's what you do." That wasn't what we did, and to do it through a difficult situation was, you know, it's tough. But uh, obviously, I'm very happy. <laughs> I am where I am today. What does it feel like when you see those people who now look at you with admiration and respect? Oh. That's a good question. You know, I'm always good to see old friends, regardless of our context changing over time and like everybody's context. And 
situation, circumstances change. It makes me, um, you know, happy to, to realize it was hard. And sometimes dealing with the crap and things that we think are stressful nowadays. And I think back to sometimes we couldn't eat, we couldn't pay the rent, we, we get electricity cut off, we get evicted. I remember going out and getting welfare and thinking how humiliating that was, thinking that was the world I lived in. And so anytime I come in contact with people or contact and hang out with, you know, we always have a good time. It's almost like you just kind of get back to the old days. And I'm just grateful that I did what I did. But I'm also grateful that I came out of that environment. I think it was a huge contributor to to me personally as a person. And obviously, it allowed me to do a lot of things that, you know, a lot of folks weren't thinking they could do for 30, 40 years ago in those circumstances. So I feel good about it. And I think they feel good about it, you know, when they get to see an old friend. Do you think that that background keeps you grounded today? I do think almost every day that it could all go away. I think about not having the ability to do what I do and that it's, this is temporary and that somehow I'm going back to Buffalo. That is definitely a recurring theme. I don't talk about it much. may not have talked about it uh, other than, you know, with a really good friend of mine from Buffalo. I don't know if that keeps me grounded. It definitely keeps me, you know, a sense that uh, all the stuff that I'm playing with the house money, if you will. Uh, really, since I left Buffalo, I always think I got in that People Express plane to Atlanta to go to Georgia Tech. And in some ways, I think that was the big win. When you got to Georgia Tech, did you fit in? It was interesting. You know, I think a lot of people go through this in, in college. Well, one, I didn't grow up with a lot of people who had went to college. And I certainly didn't grow up with a lot of people who were middle class or, or higher. I, you know, I went to this magnet school, but I wasn't immersed where 98% of the people, whether they're from the U.S. or outside, were, you know, had money, you know, had all, you know, bringing all sorts of stuff into the dorm rooms and just had a support system for college that, you know, I didn't have. So in that sense, you know, I was felt like I was on the outside looking in. I made lots of friends, so that wasn't the issue among them and others. So that wasn't the the issue. But when you're doing something that there's no, you know, you don't really know many people in your peer group who have done it, you're always kind of on the outside looking in. You know, you always work a little bit harder. You're always a little bit stressed. You're always thinking, how does this, you know, there's people who, when I remember leaving Buffalo, were saying, you know, you'll be back soon. And uh, nobody, nobody gets out of here. And so, and those are the people you know. And then the other people are sort of saying, hey, they're different. So in some ways, uh, you're never comfortable. And I think that's been a recurring thing for me, you know, even to today, is uh, you learn to thrive and do what you got to do in the environment you're in. But they're not like home, and they're not a new home. So in some ways, it's, it's sort of an odd thing. It was a great place for me to go because, you know, growing up in Buffalo in the 70s, was like seeing a parent die, you know, with manufacturing and all, all the things that happened. To, the Rust Belt happened while I grew up in Buffalo and other places in that part of the country. And to go to Atlanta in the 80s where, you know, Atlanta was thriving, you know, was one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing metro area in the U.S. And all sorts of people were moving there. And, you know, obviously we had a huge black leadership and economic I never met people that were black that had money and did stuff. So that weren't athletes, you know, so it just was a great environment for me to be in. 
because I came out of a negative environment. So that helped. And, and then Georgia Tech is a hard school. As uh, you know, many people who go to Georgia Tech, you never hear them say they graduate. They say they get out. So it's a hard place in the first sense. And then you're coming from a different circumstance, different part of the world, et cetera. So, you know, there was a lot stacked against me, but it, there was a lot that reinforced that I did the right thing. And with the backdrop of Atlanta and so many people doing things that, you know, I just never saw people like that doing who, you know, I got to know who, you know, were helpful to me. It was the perfect place for me. I had a cost leaving home or leaving being so far from home, but it, in terms of putting me on the path that, you know, I've ultimately been on, it was very helpful. Did your aspirations create stress with your parents? Well, by the time I was 10, you know, my dad, I shouldn't say that early teens, he, he moved away and you know, I sort of lost contact with him. So no, for that period of time, for my mom, it was definitely stressful. I mean, that was a hard decision. In some ways, I say I might have done it differently just because it was the right thing for me personally. I think it had a cost of my mom, who was a single mom, raising my, my sister. Uh, and I had other options closer to home. So she was absolutely wanted me to go to college. She wanted me to go closer. I wanted to get the hell out of Buffalo. And, and again, I love Buffalo. But, you know, when your peers aren't doing what you're doing, I felt like staying close to that and trying to, you know, do well in college and, and move on to a better life. I just felt like the temptations and, and the risk was too much. And so uh, there was definitely a lot of conflict with my mom. I think we've all come to peace with it, but uh, you know, that was tough to leave. I went on a new tough problems, but you know, another theme in life is my new tough problems aren't anywhere near what, what it was like living in those circumstances on the West side of Buffalo. So there was definitely some conflict there. From the outside looking in, you've had a very successful career. You have an Ivy League MBA. You spent seven years on Wall Street. You've taken two companies public as chief financial officer. Do you consider yourself to be successful? Yeah, without a doubt. How do you define that? You know, I've accomplished a lot. I've uh, built great relationships. I've learned a ton. You know, I've helped a lot of people. A ton of people have helped me. I think uh, there's five chief financial officers in the world today that I hired. So I've grown and helped people move on into upper and better things in their careers. You know, I've helped organizations. People talk about IPOs and how sexy they are, but the reality is they're about building wealth for customers that leads to building wealth for employees and, and uh, investors. And in that process, you learn a ton. You grow with it. And just to see organizations and people and, you know, hire people and see them come in at the first floor and they leave on the 10th floor, that's success. And obviously that comes with, you know, the money part of it as well. But uh, I feel like unequivocally, you know, if I didn't work again, it's a success just because, A, where I came from, you know, I was in the basement thinking I just wanted to get to the lobby and to be sitting up and, uh, you know, you know, in an upper tier uh, uh, penthouse uh, is just, you dream it. But it'd be ridiculous for me to say I wasn't successful just career-wise and what I've learned and what I've been able to do and who I've been able to help and who's helped me and and then the life I live. got three kids and a wife and we have a very good life. And uh, I didn't dream about the life I had as a kid. What did you think rich was or successful was when you were 15 years old? 
I don't know what I thought rich was. I, re- I wish I could go back in time to think about it because I think when you're poor, rich seems to be people who just spend money. I remember once we went to a, uh, we went to some show and we took a taxi home, which was a luxury for us, not walking back from the odd in Buffalo to our apartment. And the cab driver, we, we drove by this restaurant. It used to be called the Cloister in, in Buffalo. It was a premier restaurant. I would never dream of eating there. I mean, we used to eat egg salad for lunch and dinner. And we, if we could have meatloaf or pot roast, that was luxury for us. And so you think people who just spend money, you know, are rich. And I remember this guy, this cab driver saying he took his girlfriend out to dinner and spent 37 bucks on dinner. And I remember looking at my mom and, you know, at the time we were probably, I think her take home pay a week might've been that. I don't know. It'd be interesting if I could go back in time and put a number on what I thought it was. I mean, obviously people brought the word millionaire, but you just don't have a context when you're living paycheck to paycheck and you know, you miss, you skip meals. It's a big deal to get enough money to get milk, to have cereal, to go to school. And I didn't know anybody personally that was rich until probably, you know, the time that I got down to Georgia Tech. You know, it was just a concept. I can't think about if I had a number on it. Um, right. But I thought, it, I thought of it more in terms of consumption mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to wealth. I mean, the concept of wealth seemed like you were rich if you just did, you know, did stuff. The concept of having lots of bricks in the backyard in addition to being able to do stuff was just foreign to me. And, you know, it came to me well into the 20s, I think. What motivates you today? Well, I think I have a lot of gray hair and I like to leverage it, you know, to, you know, to help organizations. Um, you know, I sit on a couple of boards today and, you know, I, I ultimately think I'll uh, probably step into another operating role, use that experience to help build another successful uh, business and uh, get my handicap into the single digits <laughs> and get these kids out into the world and, uh, you know, functioning adults, hopefully for the next phase, maybe enjoy more as opposed to running real hard. Since I last my, left my last job a couple of months ago, this is really the first breath I've taken. You know, my mom was out here a couple of months ago and said that uh, you hadn't stopped working since you were a paper boy in, at 11. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think more about, you know, slowing down a little bit and enjoying because I really haven't taken enough time to enjoy what I have or what I've done. I need to figure out a way to do that. It's not easy. When you're a doer and you just like getting involved in the mix and stuff and, and helping here and doing it and doing there and, you know, earning as opposed to sort of sitting back and thinking about what you've done and you maybe slow down a little bit. I have never done that. So I'm in week seven of that and mm-hmm. uh, that's not easy. <laughs> and so I think success for me is, you know, sort of enjoy more and appreciate more as opposed to wanting more. You mentioned getting your kids launched into adulthood. Your kids, like mine, are being raised in affluence, very different environment than the one you were raised in. Does that worry you? It does worry me because as I, you know, we talked about at the top here, my lack of stuff, economic security, if you will, to put a nice name on it as a kid, framed who I am today. And I think about it every day. And I think it governs me. It's, it's one of the reasons it's so hard for me to slow down and appreciate because I'm just working. I'm just running because I'm always worried that, you know, it might end. And so to see my kids who don't have that and they can't have that because I'm not willing to live a life 
that would give them that. Um, <laughs> and so it's scary for me because I don't, I don't know what success looks like in a household where kids have stuff and don't have complete security. I will say I stopped working seven weeks ago and my kids initially were terrified that we were going to lose our house because, <laughs> because daddy didn't have a job. But, um, well then you've been you know, successful, I, at least instilling some of the middle-class ethos into them or the, yeah. the working class ethos into them. Yeah. I don't think they're thinking they're going to zero, but, uh, but yeah, I don't like it, but I don't have a path out of it. Some of the older kids are doing some volunteer stuff. A couple of kids in public school, I think they see a different world, but it's just different when you come home and you're not sure you're going to eat or you're not sure the rent's going to be paid. And that's every day for 18 years. You can't give them that. And so, and when they eat and how they eat and the things that they're able to do, they should do. I mean, all kids should have all sorts of experience and figure out what they want to do and you know, get to meet a, a bunch of different people and have some in, interest. In, so they're doing what they should do. It's just the result is they come out of a, a context that I never had. So in some ways, I don't know how to think about it. I wish for them what I had, uh, but I don't wish for them what I had, which is why I work so hard. So, you know, you get this endless do loop around, you know, I've kind of come to a comfort level that, you know, it's, it's good. Tell them lots of stories and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think they can appreciate it. We do go back to Buffalo and, you know, I think they can see it and I think they appreciate it in me, but I don't think we'll get beyond that. You know, some of that is a bummer, but it is what it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine with it. And it beats the alternative because I'm not going back to eating egg salad for dinner every day, you know, hoping for pot roast. So we'll just have to figure it out together since I don't know it either. Right. That's amazing. Most important question. Are you still a simple kid from Buffalo? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Hard to shake the, the anxiety of coming home and not knowing what's in the pot, huh? Exactly. That's never going away. Dude, and I wouldn't cool. want it to. I think this has been a fascinating conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? No, you know, I appreciate it. I think this is a great topic. You know, the one anecdote, I mentioned egg salad a couple of times. For a long time, I wouldn't eat egg salad because of, uh, you know, having to eat it. And now I make it all the time and love it. So They're probably organic eggs and uh, premium mayonnaise though, right? Well, it's still Hellman's. It's whole food, so, you know. It's overpriced eggs that I assume are better for me. Great place to wrap it up. Thank you, Yancey, for your time. Your story is uh, a really interesting one. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Yancey. For the second conversation in this Straddlers episode, I spoke to Susan Nicholas. Susan's son and my son are good buddies from their school here in Atlanta. The first time I saw her resume on LinkedIn, I was like, my God. Who the hell is this woman? And here's who she is. She was raised in an unstable single-parent home in Morgantown, West Virginia. Uh, she went on to earn an MD from University of Iowa Medical School, completed a general surgery residency at University of San Francisco, and a cardiothoracic fellowship at Stanford. That Stanford. Oh, and since she was bored, she went ahead and got an MBA from Emory University to boot. Yet none of these degrees brought her the validation she was looking for. This is an incredible story about how the experiences we have as kids 
inform the path we get on as professionals. And it's really interesting. This is Susan Nicholas. Hey, Susan Nicholas. Welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, Paul. So where'd you grow up? I was born in Pennsylvania in a very rural town uh, near Brownsville, Pennsylvania. It was supposed to be the steel industry or where it started in Pennsylvania, but it moved to Pittsburgh and that town that my father was raised and grew up in went to to zero. Mm -hmm. And so I was born into that milieu. My mom was 17. What'd your dad do? At the time, my dad was starting a band. Oh yeah, what kind of band? Like a funk band. They were like jumpsuits and platform boots and do gigs around the area. In steel country. Yes, yes. So my dad was a singer. Well, he is a singer. That's what he's done his whole life Mm -hmm. with some things interwoven, but at the core of him, he's a singer. And your mom was 17. Yes. When my parents got married, my mom was 16. She had my brother, Rob. 10 months later, we're like Irish twins. I came. Mm-hmm. My mother was 17. And I don't clearly remember my birth, but it was like chaotic. Mm-hmm. And my parents didn't stay together very long. It was too stressful. And they divorced before I had awareness that they were married and having lots of kids when they were kids. Right. And so when my parents separated, my brothers and I, we moved to my father's childhood home, my paternal grandmother, and she was raising the last five of her own children. Right. My, my father's the oldest of nine. Wow. And so my aunt, some of them were in like second grade or first grade, and here we come in to live in, in, in like low-income project housing on food stamps and government cheese, that kind of environment. And this is in West Virginia. That was in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Then when I was six years old, my father remarried and moved our family to Morgantown, West Virginia. Okay. And that's where they still are. And what was the home situation that you had there with your dad in Morgantown? I remember our first house was a townhome. And we lived in, I would say, a low middle-class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That's how I would describe it today but it wasn't the welfare system. So it was like a step up. Like for us, moving to Morgantown was like a step out of poverty. Morgantown's a step up. It was at the time and still is if you look at, I mean, it's probably 10 steps up if you look at it today, you know, because that town that my father grew up in never never got on its feet again. It just deteriorated further. And Morgantown is a college town. Right. And is a growing town, but still I would say squarely in the middle class. Did your father make money as a singer? And if he didn't, what kind of work did he do to support the family? He did. So he made money singing. There were times I remember when I was a kid, he worked as a car salesman. There was another time that my father worked like in fundraising and he still does that. Like he works for the Miracle Network, the Children's Miracle Network Mm. for the hospital. Mm -hmm. And he used to sing at their galas and to fundraise. And then he ended up singing, doing... Uh, like telethons, right? And then became more under the management side of that, of making contacts in that nonprofit world for fundraising. So he, you know, still sings and still does fundraising, you know, for different nonprofits. Would you describe your home life as stable financially? No. In fact, I grew up what I call the energy of lack, scarcity. I grew up under the belief system that there was never enough money, mm-hmm. that money didn't grow on trees. I remember my dad would take me to the grocery store. My dad did all the cooking in the house and we would learn how to budget and how much 
Like what was the better buy on this bulk item to feed a family of five or six, you know, I grew up, there were five kids in the house at one time. And so that is the kind of mentality that, that I grew up in. I call it the energy of lack Mm -hmm. of not enoughness. How do you think that stayed with you or informed (laughs) what you wanted to do with your life? Well, I remember when I was still living in that housing project with my grandmother and my aunts and my cousins, it seemed like more and more people came into a very small place Mm -hmm. and it was very stressful. And what I remember, I was in like kindergarten age, about five years old. And I remember looking around at this environment and like shaking my head like this wasn't how I was going to live. Mm -hmm. So the, I had awareness as a very young child that I wasn't going to live like that. That was unacceptable but I didn't know how to get out of it except like to go to school. I did have access to school. Might've been the best schools, but I had access to learn. In my five-year-old mind, I was like, well, I can do that. I would say the expectations for someone like me was that I was going to be a teenage mom on welfare. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally like the bar was so oppressively low, I could trip over it. All I had to do was not get pregnant as a teenager or not repeat the cycle that my mom and my aunts and, I think my grandmother was married like at 12 or 14 or Holy something. Cow. I've thought about that. And I realized that when you are disempowered economically, socially, that the only power that you have is that like of reproduction. I mean, that sounds like very, I don't know, Lord of the Fly-ish, but the idea is that that was the only power that they had. That's is that they can, can make, that you could do. You can do you, that. Thing. Yeah, you could make babies, you know. And it's what's expected of you. Yeah, that's all that you can do. And then have the government pay for it. So you said you saw school as a, as your one way out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When did you get serious about school? I think from the very beginning, I went, I remember going to first grade in West Virginia and Morgantown. Mm-hmm. I was always a very good student. Like I would study. I remember we had handwriting class. I had the best handwriting. (laughs) I remembered like being very focused. It's strange when I think about it now, but that's how I felt. Like I could do school. I could learn. I could learn anything I thought. Right. And if I just kept with that, that I could get out. Yeah. When you're in high school, what did you think you wanted to do? What was your professional goal at that point? I decided when I was 10 years old that I was going to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And the way that that came about is I didn't know any doctors. Like certainly not in my family. Nobody went to college. My mom finished the ninth grade. My father finished high school. And no, no one ever talked about college or say, oh, you need to be prepared or right. anything like right. that. It's certainly not going to be any money for you to go to college. So it was, there was not even a thing. But I thought I was going to be a doctor. And what happened was when I was 10 years old, I saw this movie called The Elephant Man. Mm -hmm. It gave me nightmares, like sad nightmares for like, I don't know, like a year. And I remember the only redeeming thing was the doctor in that movie. He had compassion for this disfigured man. And it seemed like all the rest of society were like heinous. (laughs) But this doctor, he showed compassion. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to be like that guy, you know, that, that, that compassionate doctor. And I was like, okay. I knew nothing about college, medical school, how much that was going to cost, specialty training, nothing, nothing, nothing. But I was like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor one day. And so it was. Where did you go to college and how did you get there? 
So I applied to colleges out of high school, like most people did. So first I was in this AP, these AP classes in high school, and I would go to the university half a day in high school mm-hmm. and then come back and finish high school. And so I did that. And so I had some exposure. So I lived in Morgantown. The West Virginia University is there. And so I would go to the campus and then I would do stuff like bi- I'd study biology and then I'd come back to high school and finish my high school stuff. I'd do like AP chemistry and AP history and all these classes. Right. And so I used to get very good grades in high school and I got to, this is a privilege, you could go, if you met a certain threshold, you could go to the university. So I got to go and do that. And then I was like, well, I'm going to apply to colleges. I had a lot of ambition, but no money. I ended up going to West Virginia University on like loans mm-hmm. and, and I worked. So I, I was a waitress at a restaurant, a cocktail waitress. And in the summertime, I worked in the labs in this company called Myland Pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And I would work there in the summer. And so I would just earn money in the summer and after school or after classes, whatnot, I would waitress. That's how I got through college. Wow. And what did you major in in college? Biology. Biology. Pre-med biology. And you're still on the path. You decided med school was your destination. Yes, I did decide that. And so how did you think you were going to pay for that? By waitressing? I just assumed I would take out student loans. Mm -hmm. I I had no other thoughts. Uh, My parents didn't pay for my undergrad, so I was like, they're definitely not paying for medical school. Right. So when it was time for me to go to medical school and apply there... It was after I had lived abroad for a year. I lived in West Africa for a year working at these health clinics. And I saw true poverty, like a mind, a body, of soul. I witnessed that there. And I spent a year abroad. And when I came back, I worked for two years, you know, graduated college in 1995. For two years after that, I worked at Milan. They hired me full-time in pharmacokinetics as, as a chemist. And I went to graduate school Milan paid for it. They said, you know, you could get certain grades and they would pay for your post-secondary education. So I went to public health graduate school. Mm -hmm. I did that. I remember I got straight A's in this public health and then I applied to medical school and I got into University of Iowa and they gave me partial scholarship. So you go to University of Iowa. What kind of medicine were you thinking about practicing at that point? Rural medicine. Rural medicine. That was my thought. Because from my experience in Africa, I was like, oh, I bet I'll be um, like this primary care doctor and people would give me eggs and breads and I'll, I'll see patients. That's literally what my, my thinking was. Was the motivation to be a doctor, you talked about the, the elephant man and the compassion, was any part of it motivated by, by financial security or was it, was it the human connection that you really wanted? Both. I saw it as a way to like earn a living that was honorable, mm-hmm. like that would be meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would allow for stability. I mean, I that was my perception. Yeah. So yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. So you graduate from medical school, mm-hmm. and do you start practicing medicine, or what did you no, do? No, I well, the way we have residency programs. So I graduated medical school in two thousand one, and of course by the way, this time there's formal residency training. So I had to go and be a resident somewhere, and I chose surgery. And I went to San Francisco. I went to UCSF to do general surgery. That was like a huge shift in perspective. How so? In every which way. It was very hard, number one. 
And I remember during my intern year, I had this epiphany that this wasn't what I wanted to do. Mm. I remember exactly where I was. I was in a case, a general surgical case. It was like a low anterior resection and I'm holding this retractor. Mm-hmm. Like it was like the typical intern thing to do. You're like holding exposure so someone else can operate. Right. So I'm like holding this retractor and I realized that this is not what I want to do. And I became afraid mm-hmm. because I had all these student loans. I had committed to this since I was 10 years old. And here I was and I didn't know anymore. I thought to myself, okay, everyone feels this way. You know, I, I was like residency, especially internship right. at UCSF was so, such a malignant program. I was like, everyone feels this way. This is normal. And I just stayed with that feeling for like seven years. <laughs> because, you, because you went on and even did a fellowship. Right? Yes, I did. And where did you do your fellowship? At Stanford in cardiothoracic. So I ended up doing some general surgery. Then I had to do part of their program as a research fellowship. So I ended up doing a research fellowship at the San Francisco VA in cardiac. I said, well, that bowel surgery, that's not it. Mm-hmm. I bet if I do, I made a joke. I said, oh, if I just operate above the diaphragm, <laughs> if I just stay in the chest, then oh, that's way gotta, cleaner. That's yeah. way, avoid the bowel. That'll be sure. it. <laughs> so at this point, let's see, let's, let's count the degrees you have. You have a college degree, you have a medical degree. Did you, you have a master's of public health as well? No, I just, oh, did, one the, oh, just did one year before I, because I didn't oh, want to defer medical out. school. Yeah, Come exactly. On. Can't you exactly. finish anything? And you have a fellowship from in cardiothoracic surgery from Stanford. And then I went to business school at Emory. That's how I got. And you got, now you have an MBA too. (laughs) What the hell is going on? It was validation. Mm -hmm. I I figured it out because Mm -hmm. I was doing all this stuff. Yeah. And I realized I was looking for internal validation that I was enough. Mm -hmm. And this came from this lack, this financial lack, this lack of stuff, lack of enoughness that I carry since childhood. Yeah. And it was playing out in these very elaborate scenarios throughout my life. Mm-hmm. And so it was all this attempt to feel like I was good enough, mm-hmm. that I was worthy enough. Right. Now, what was on top of this financial lack was also like a lack of motherly love. Because when I lived with my grandmother, this was before, you know, this is like I was three or four. I was separated from my mother. Right. So I was living with my father's family very depraved. My mother's family was very depraved, but my father... What do you mean they were depraved? Like nothing. Like, so one of the things that was rarely shared in my family is that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, she's a Native American lady. My mother, I come from a mixed race family. So my mother appears, she appeared to be Caucasian, but her mother was Native and her father was white. And my dad married her. And when... Your dad's African-American. He is. And when we came into the world, like first thing, my dad was not allowed to marry her. Like he said his mother was so racist that he had to slide the marriage certificate under her door to let her know that he married my mother. Like a hotel bill. Yeah, like they were... It was just like their mentality was so... Well, it was what it was. That was the situation that I came into, like this this very dysfunctional societal relationship. Right. So my paternal grandmother was a prostitute. Mm. Well, she she like ran a brothel. Wow. 
And I remember as a child, my father would not allow me and my brothers to go visit our grandmother. Right. And I remember we'd go there and there would be like pornographic cartoons on. And I, so as a child, I was like, it's a cartoon, but they were, and me and my brother, it felt, it felt weird. I can imagine. And I didn't understand all of it. Yeah. Like I just, I was, it was confusing like to me, but I remember going there. Yeah. My mother would take us to her home and she fought her whole life to get out of that because the mentality of her mother was that my mom was going to be a prostitute, like work there. Mm. And my mom was like, I am not. And so she fought that. I know my, my parents, you know, were like, there's no way I'm doing that. I I didn't even have a comprehension of it because my father would, would never speak of it. Right. And he would not allow us to go there. And it it was almost like a back way sneaking to us to visit our grandmother. Yeah. And she always seemed very nice, not like grandmotherly nice, but I never felt threatened by her. I have no doubt that if my mother (laughs) stayed there, then I would have been like next in line to work for my grandmother. Far out. Like, very dysfunctional that's that's hard to relate to but yeah i mean i do have a cousin who's a lawyer so i have a little bit of (laughs) never mind so the point you were really making though is that you're collecting degrees looking for validation partly because your mom wasn't around i was i felt like i wasn't lovable or wasn't good enough or almost like invisible like when i thought about it and this was me thinking about it as like an educated person later in life, I was mm-hmm. like, whose mom doesn't love them? <laughs> like yeah. that, that was like foreign, you know, a concept. And it wasn't that she didn't love me, but she couldn't like, she was so burdened in life. She never, I said, she didn't have a finesse for life. Like she couldn't overcome her situation or circumstances. And she died rather young at 56. Mm-hmm. It was like a drug overdose. Mm. It was like, it was just like such just sad. You know, I, I, I felt that at, by that time I had made closure with my mother right? and we had, I, you know, I, I say we often weep at funerals because we haven't made closure in life. Right. And I felt that I'd made closure. Like we had reconnected. I, I felt that I understood her. I knew that it wasn't a lack of love. I knew it was a lack of ability or capacity. Right. And she didn't feel like she could be there for me and my brothers. And all of my mother's children suffered in some very visceral way from that relationship. I can imagine. And I think that I, I don't want to say did the best, but I did my, what I call my work, my internal conscious introspective work. And I was able to overcome it. What did your family think about you pursuing all these graduate degrees? I believe that they thought they began to know me and like said, okay, well that makes sense for Susie. And they used to call me the first time that I noticed that there was a separation between my family and me was when I went away to San Francisco to do my residency. I remember my parents came and helped me move. They helped me literally physically get a bed and move into Mm -hmm. this like place that I lived in San Francisco on 17th and Fulton. And they were there for like a weekend and then I, they never came back. Mm-hmm. They never visited. Well, one time, they, they came one time. And I was like, I've been out, I was in, out in California for like seven years. I was like, my parents only came here once. 
I confronted my dad about that. I was like, yeah, I, I see you go visit Trevor and you know all my other brothers and you guys seem to be very involved in their lives. But I said, you never visit me. And my dad said it. He said, well, you left. You're the one who left. Mm. And I said, well, I just went to medical school and residency. What do you mean left? Right, yeah. But for him, I think it was like this, like I left the family. Yeah. Geography was part of it, but it wasn't all of it. Because I remember my brother, my youngest brother, he'd be like in Germany doing a play. And my parents found no difficulty getting to Germany. Mm. He married a woman in Japan. They had no problems getting going to Japan and being with my youngest brother. But when it came to me, it was like, oh, it was always too far. Did they think that you thought you were too good for the family? I don't know if they thought that. I'm not going to put that on them. But I do think that we weren't able to communicate. Mm -hmm. As I began to see my family from a new perspective, like, like outside of them, I always felt different that I was like the black sheep. Like I'd never fit in. I, I used to say, oh, I must be adopted. Because mm. I just, but then I thought, well, who would adopt a child in 1972 mm. in such desperate situations? Yeah, yeah. So I was like, so this must be my parents. <laughs> so let's, but let's, yeah. after you're already done your surgery, did you work as a cardiothoracic surgeon for a while? And why did you get your MBA? Uh, Not that you shouldn't have started with the MBA. You could have just skipped all that medical school <laughs> nonsense. All right. So here's, here's the real story. When I was in my fellowship at Stanford, I tried to take my own life. Wow. And so Why? I, so this on? is, this is where everything changed or where like where I said, I became awake. I woke up. I was in my fellowship and I said, I made it. Like I got to do everything that I thought I was going to do and more. And my idea of being a doctor in some rural village it had nothing to do with going to Stanford and being a cardiothoracic surgeon. Yeah, I was like beyond my wildest dream. And when I got there, I realized it didn't fill the void. Right. I was still empty. Mm-hmm. And I didn't believe that I could carry on anymore. Right. That I, I, I didn't know what else one could do. <laughs> you know, I, I, I literally didn't. Yeah. I remember one time I was in the operating room. And I was with my mentors. And it was like all men, of course, white haired. I call it the ivory tower. Mm-hmm. And it was me, like very, I think Stanford had trained two women, cardiothoracic surgeons in 50 years, mm. you know? And so I start telling them this story about my parents, mm-hmm. about how, how I came into the world. And I remember one of my mentors saying, well, how the hell did you get here? Mm-hmm. Like realizing how much, like how dense that is and how hard you got to push to get out of it. For sure. It's kind of like, your last interview about the black hole, mm-hmm. like getting sucked in and like not even light can escape this thing. Black hole families, yeah, which keep their kids stuck. Yeah, that's how I came. I came into a black hole family and maybe light does escape. Mm-hmm. And and that, and I got out. Yeah. And I think that shocks everyone because it's like, how do you get out of that? But you're in this place where you thought there was no alternative but to take your own life. Mm, That was an emotional, like a soulful place. Mm -hmm. So I did not believe that I had no options. In fact, I thought I had infinite options. Like I could do anything. I could get jobs. I could be a cardiothoracic surgeon. You know, I could do anything. Right. But in my soul, I felt empty. 
And I knew I couldn't persist in that. Mm-hmm. Like it would just eat me alive. Like the soulful emptiness. Mm-hmm. I call it like a crevasse void. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was so profoundly deep. I just felt that there was nothing else. Like I done it all. So I go through this whole experience of trying to take my own life. And I, I talk about this in chapter nine of my book, if anyone is interested. What's the name of your book? The Duality of Being. Where is it? Is it on Amazon? It's everywhere. The Duality Amazon, of Being yeah. by Dr. Susan Nicholas. That's correct. And so in The Duality of Being, it's the first time I actually really talk about this because I thought I had to be brutally honest to write a book on consciousness. Mm-hmm. This is when I believe that first awareness came. Like me in the back seat, I leased the C-class Mercedes Benz for my like 33rd birthday. I go down like Pacific Coast Highway and I knew this spot that I love to kind of watch the ocean. I pull into this unpaved lot where I had, you know, height over this, the beauty of the Pacific Ocean and I lie there to die. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to waste time talking about how I did that, but I just went there to die because I, I didn't feel that. I could fill the void. I, I, I didn't know how to fill the void. And the emptiness kept me very sad. I had like a profound sadness in me at, at all times. Like no matter what I achieved, like the sadness was there. It was like a trusted friend. It was always with me. I remember graduating medical school and there it was. Mm-hmm. Like every achievement was met with the sadness. Do you suffer from depression? I did during my clinical training. And I realized a lot of the doctors did. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, I thought it was just me, but no. A lot of us, I think, we all have different journeys, but I think going into clinical medicine, some of us believe that we're going to find purpose Mm -hmm. or fulfill ourselves or be healers, Mm -hmm. and we realize it's not there. So you kept going, you kept pushing further beyond the human connection of practicing medicine like a general practitioner where you could just go into, you could be the family doctor. And you become a Stanford certified cardio. <laughs> Could you please say what you work in, please? Cardiothoracic surgeon. Right. right. <clears throat> and uh, how long did you practice that? Technically, I, I should have done that for like three years. Like that's their fellowship time. Sure. And at the end of my first year, I left. And that's when I moved to Atlanta. I went to business school. Why did you go to business school? What did you think you were going to find a business school that you didn't find it? I remember when I was doing cardiothoracic and I was in the Bay Area and in Palo Alto, I was thinking maybe if I did healthcare venture capital investing, mm. that would fulfill me. I literally believe that. Like it just seems so sexy. I knew lots of people dropping out of Stanford doing that. And it was right around the corner. I would like go to these little meetings when I could and I was like, oh, that sounds so cool. I believe that if it wasn't you know, operating on the heart that was going to bring me whole, then I could invest in early stage healthcare companies and that would make me whole. So I was still on this, called the hamster wheel of, of achieving things to find fulfillment in, within myself. Because this is a double episode, let's go to spoiler alert. <laughs> You're not in healthcare venture capital. No, not anymore. When somebody asks you today, what do you do? What do you, how do you answer that? That I am an author of books on consciousness, a public speaker on topics of consciousness. <laughs> I'm an energy healer. Okay. And I'm a conscious coach. Big bucks in consciousness coaching? 
Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Do you still have massive student loans? Yes, I do. Okay. I do. But I do believe like this work, because I feel that it's internally like fulfilling on my soul level, Mm -hmm. will support me. Mm -hmm. I believe that. I mean, I believe I am in my purpose finally. I don't feel like jumping off a bridge all the time. Right. And I feel like I can, I, it will sustain me. My belief systems have been literally turned upside down from how I grew up. What do you mean by that? I realized that that energy of lack I was carrying was a belief system. Mm-hmm. Just like believing that money doesn't grow on trees or there's never enough money or I don't deserve more money. Whatever those belief systems are, right. I've investigated those through what I call my, the process of introspection. And this is what I talk about when I write and speak about doing this introspective work and literally freeing your soul. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, taming the mind of ours and all the stories that we tell ourselves, the belief systems that we carry mm-hmm. goes a long way in elevating the soul. So it's really about elevating your vibrational frequency, about questioning all those beliefs, just like you questioned the belief in Santa Claus, mm-hmm. question belief of whatever, whatever the beliefs you have or whatever they are and saying, was well, that true? And as soon as you begin that, I I call it an exalted perception. As soon as you begin that process of questioning your beliefs and examining them, you begin to have these shifts in your vibrational frequency, like on a soul level, and it's freeing to you. Like you feel lighter and like, I call it a lightness of being. And you're like, oh, I was just, that's just a story I told myself. Right. And maybe it's not true at all. And then go along that path of uncovering all those belief systems that you've held in this lifetime. And how long have you been doing this? I've been awake. I, I say really awake for about seven years mm-hmm. because I, I had a conscious awakening in 2012. At that time, Wolfie was, my son was two going on three years old. I was at that place again where I said, I'm not going to make it. I, I believed I wasn't going to make it. I was profoundly unhappy and unfulfilled in my personal relationships. I was a stay-at-home mom. I didn't really have like a job or something I was doing and that felt strange. And I literally lay down to sleep at night and began leaving out of my own body. Mm-hmm. And that is why I really woke up. Mm. Like then I began changing my life. All right. Susan, your story is remarkable and we could do another hour talking about consciousness. Tell me again, the name of your book and where people can find out more about you. Sure. So you can find me at Susan Mm-hmm. I've written two books. The first is The Duality of Being, Perspectives from Multidimensional Travel, which details this entire life journey of mine and the perspectives I've gained from leaving my body and having a new perspective on the entirety of our earthly existence. Then I've written a children's book uh, called Two Parts of Me, I Am More Than My Body that Mm -hmm. came out April 19th. And I realized during writing my first book and then during my journey that most of the the belief systems, the grievances that we carry, the burdens we carry into adulthood originate in childhood. And what if we let our kids know that they can transform these stories and beliefs and free their own souls at a very, very young age? Perhaps we would have less suffering in the world. What's the name of the children's book again? Two Parts of Me. Two I am more than I am more than my body. And that's available on Amazon, Google Play, and Barnes and Noble. Cool. And the website's SusanNicholas.org. That's it. Thank you so much for being so honest with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right. Thank you. Take care. There we go, folks. My conversations with Susan Nicholas and my buddy, Yancey Spruill, hoping to see him this summer when I'm in Colorado. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, share it with a friend, post it on that there Facebook, put it on LinkedIn even. That's where a lot of smarty pants business people like to hang out, LinkedIn. They'd like to hear these conversations. 
give them something to think about during their busy work day while they're waiting in line at the airport or what have you. I really appreciate you listening. If you have a minute, subscribe to this podcast and or give us a rating and a review on whatever service you listen to it. We'll be back next week. Thanks for stopping by.